0: I grew up in a suburban town of New York with all the accoutrements of Long Island and all of the Americana that that affords or that provides. But when we went to synagogue, my father, the extremely ambitious and successful lawyer that he was, we became shtetl Jews. As we walked along Old Mill Road, made our way past the Temple Israel of Great Neck, and made our way to the Great Neck Synagogue, there was one voice and one experience that with all of the trappings of suburbia we looked forward to. It was the voice of our cantor, Chazan Shulman, a blessed memory. Chazan Shulman was diminutive man, and that's a kind way of saying he was kind of up to here on me, but his voice was angelic and big. There was nothing about his voice that wasn't Pavarotti-esque, if you know what I mean, or Caruso-esque. When Chazam Shulman began to sing without microphones, he could fill a sanctuary easily that housed over a thousand members. But it wasn't the power of his voice that really got us, although sure, it was the krex in his voice. His voice had a sigh. It had something that when I've studied opera before and sung together, you know, whenever I would sing that, my voice coach would say, you sing it like a chazen. You have a little crex in it, a little exhale that is a sigh, a little anguish. I was reminded of that because my parents, should live and be well, who live across the park here, invited me this week to a concert I told some of my friends and students about it. It was a concert that I might not have gone to, but there was one catch. It was with a cantor that I knew, who used to live around the corner from me on the Upper West Side. It was part of the Orthodox synagogue on 86th Street, the Jewish Center, and this young cantor, this young chazan, I saw him one day walking on Amsterdam, singing to himself, and I introduced myself And he told me, he said, my name is Chaim David, Berzan. I said, Chaim David, that's my name, Chaim David. We share a name. And we became friends. And he moved over to the east side and he's in my parents synagogue and they told me that he was gonna be giving a concert to honor the great cantorial master, Yossela Rosenblatt. We could call him like the Michael Jordan of early cantorial arts, a great who was unparalleled in his capacity to convey nuance and newness and most of all, feeling. And so we sat there together, my mother on my right, my father on my left, holding hands to listen to Chaim David Berzan, the cantor, sing a song from Yassler Rosenblatt. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I began to cry. I had to excuse myself and leave the room. And I came back, I was so overwhelmed with emotion. And I wondered what it was, obviously. There's plenty to be emotional about, but I wondered what it was that triggered it. And after the song, they began to break down what Rosenblatt did. And the one thing they kept coming back to was, you see this note that he did? That's unique, it's the Kretz note. It's the note that is the Kretz, the sigh note. It's a note that moves it from major to minor and minor into deep longing and yearning. And as he began to talk about the technology, the tools of cantorial arts and music and song in general, he said something that I'll never forget. He said, if you were a Jew living in Europe, experiencing the persecution and the pogroms, the never-ending litany of suffering, and when is it coming next, and insecurity, and uncertainties with all of its becant qualities captured beautifully in Fiddler on the Roof, if you were living in that kind of experience, you came to shul, cry. Shul was therapy. Shul was catharsis. Shul liturgy had less to do with asking God to make it better. It had more to do with asking God to hold it with us. I couldn't help but think How profound that was, how profound that insight into the function of the synagogue, the function of the sanctuary, the function of these houses of belonging, as David White called it, these places we come to find our eyes in the dark, to find our way when we can't see in front of us. It gave me insight into a difference of opinion. It is a famous difference of opinion about the meaning and the function of the tabernacle in the desert. This Shabbat, as you might have guessed from the song that we just sang, is the Shabbat where the Torah will tell us to build a sanctuary that I might dwell within it, the Asuli Mikdash, prepare me a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, that I might live in that sanctuary. And commentators for centuries have wondered and debated what is the purpose of that portable sanctuary in the desert. There's one opinion made famous by the Ramban Nachmanides, the great Spanish commentator in the 13th century who said, you see, the Jewish people had been on Sinai. they had seen remarkable things, they had had epiphanies. And in order for the Jewish people to bring themselves to that height again, they would need A physical expression of Sinai of Sinai they would need a mini mobile Sinai unit and that is the Mishkan in that perspective the Mishkan reminds us of the heights of our possibilities it reminds us of the ephemeral of the transcendent of our own sublimity it reminds us of our farther reaches of our potential of Look what we were, look who we were. In each and every Shabbat in the Romamu synagogue, and in synagogues like Romamu, there's a miniature Sinai going on, not just the literal Sinai that is sitting here, son of Jeffrey and Shelley, hi, Sinai. But the reminder ever-present of the power of our wholeness, the power of our possibilities, It's an ecstatic experience in the deepest sense of the word, it's ecstasia, it's outside of all of the possible vessels. Sinai points to some great height that we long to aspire to attain and retain. But there is another opinion most famously expressed by Rashi, the 11th century French commentator and a school of thought that places the building of the Mishkan not at the foot of Sinai, but after the sin of the golden calf. And in that opinion, the purpose of the Sinai, of the purpose of the sanctuary, the purpose of the Mishkan, is not to remind us of our wholeness, but to remind us of how broken we can be sometimes. To remind us of that to remind us of that longing for wholeness that we know is not yet there. The mishkan, the portable sanctuary, the function becomes a place where we can cry together, where we can long together. It becomes a house of longing, not belonging, a place where we share with one another our almost and our not-yets, Our remorses, our regrets, our sometimes, our foibles, our frailties, our fragilities, our shadow. These, of course, are not two, and they don't need to be polarized. The sanctuary, of course, is both of those things. But I'm thinking tonight most powerfully about that second opinion, about what it is to have a community that's there for the long haul as we work through all of our broken pieces. I don't know if any of you here had a chance to read an article that was sent, that, well actually was sent to me this week, I don't know, ah, I see it wasn't from this week, so someone sent to me a beautiful article. What if there's no such thing as closure? The article is about the social scientist Pauline Boss and her work She wrote a book called The Myth of Closure in which she coined a term called ambiguous loss. She criticized the theory that grief and loss are things that we come to some finality around. That in navigating our way around the things that break in our lives or the things that could have been different, the problems that we hold and the paradoxes that we can't puzzle our way through, we have been in some way unfortunately educated to think in the way that Freud thought of grief as something that you could come to some closure around. You could finish it neatly and sew it up. In fact, according to Freud, detachment from that which you are grieving is a sign of your health in moving forward. But Boss's work is much more subtle and much more profound. She writes about the ambiguity of loss, how it circles round and around and revisits us, how we, at this moment, at the time of pandemic, are holding so many different pieces of loss that it's hard to process them all at once. There's an ambiguity and a a lack of clarity. There's a need for a mishkan, a need for a community in a space where those things don't finally, once and for all, get buttoned up neatly, but are part of a never-ending, but comforting process of being known and seen in the midst of its ambiguity and its loss. I think about Ramamu on a weekend like this, this community, all of you, some of you who have been a part of this community from the beginning, some of you who have been in leadership in this community, some of you might be here for the first time tonight, many of you, friends, part of the beauty and the tapestry of this beautiful house of longing we have known ecstasy in these pews and we've known heartbreak we've known what it is to remember sinai and its power and we've had the courage and the resilience and the strength and the integrity to hold the aftermath of loss with no expectation no rushing Just the beauty of the space in between. This is a remarkable community. I hope and pray that you feel the same way. I hope and pray that you feel that the purpose of any sacred center sacred community is to hold Sinai and also hold ambiguity and loss to heal, to hear the clex and the sigh that bends a note and breaks a heart. There's another cantor. His name was David Cantor. And he was one of the first um, well, it was part of a group of people that were so excited about Romumu when it started, some 14 years ago. One of the things that you knew about David was that under any and all circumstances, David was going to be positive and uplifting. He brought people to our community, he said, you know, there's a really exciting place that's happening. It's, you know, let's go get, let's go to the Romumu and dance in the back and let's move and always had a smile on his face. And when I found out from our members, Tammy and Rob, also two of the original members of our community, who know what it is to hold these tender places, they told me that David had been diagnosed with cancer a couple weeks ago. I was surprised by that because I had hoped that David would have contacted me. I didn't know, but he was keeping it quiet. Last thing I remember was David had just been married a year ago after a long search for his Beshert. and he had just turned 50, and they were expecting their first child. And when I reached out to him, he said, how happy he was to hear my voice, how much he'd been thinking about me. And I said to him, you know, David, I'd love to talk to you if it's okay with you every week, and, you know, until, you're, until you're, you're healed again, and on your feet. He said, no, no, you're too busy, too busy. He said, no, Dad, I really do, I wanna to talk to you. So that was three Wednesdays ago, and the next Wednesday night, Called me. Of course, I'd forgotten that I'd promised it, and put in my calendar. And said, I dropped everything. and said, I called him right back, and he said, "Oh, you're too busy. You're too busy." I said, "No, David. I'm, no, I'm not too busy." And then he was supposed to speak with me again this Wednesday, and and I got a call from his. I got a text from his brother, it said that he was in the hospital. And in between all that, his daughter had been born. How do we hold all of these things? Yasuli Mikdash. Make a space, make a space where people can gather and where they can hear that one clacks that opens the floodgates of all the loss that we try to navigate in this lifetime. Make a space strong enough, holy enough, for the cantor's voice to rise and to heal. May God bless us, this Kilaki Dosha, this holy community, with the strength to hold one another to return to this beautiful space, to make it a true house of belonging and longing. May God bless us to know the heights of Sinai, but most importantly, to build a sanctuary that can house all of our loss. May it be so. Please rise if you are able.